Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. podcast where we start with a random article explore it then follow the links and see where it takes us john what is your random article today my random article today is rose album which uh Hmm. is a was j-pop singer uh rifu's second album released in 2006 the track I Wanna Go to a Place, <laughs> Rifu's third overall single, was used as one of the endings for the anime Gundam Seed Destiny. Uh-huh. Because, for whatever reason, it's on the tip of my tongue that uh, uh, everything in Japan is based off of anime and manga. I don't know why that term sounds so familiar. Yeah. It's almost as though Wikipedia has picked up in its weird random algorithm that I should be looking at something from Japan for yeah. reasons. For reasons we'll never know. Yeah. For reasons we'll never know. Yep. Podcasting reasons we'll never know. <laughs> Podcasting reasons the world may never understand. Yeah. But um, that aside, uh, that's pretty much the article. <laughs> that's that's it. There's there's a track listing. Um, but I mean, we got links to J-pop, Rifu, various uh, the entire genre of J-pop, Sony Japan, which is probably more relevant than Sony. Hmm. Other places, because Sony kind of has been in Japan the longest. Right. Um, but uh, we have some good, we have some good stuff here. Um, not there's there's plenty of links for the lack of article. I'll tell you uh, that much. Well, uh, that's good. At least. Yeah. But 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 that being said, uh, what do you have? Because it's probably going to be uh, a little more robust. It is more robust. Okay. But it is common flat lizard. Uh. How Science. flat are we talking? <laughs> um, it's pretty flat, I would say. It's mm. it's got like a squishy kind of look to it. Got a squishy if you, look. If you uh, chop off its middle bits, it would almost look like uh, Reese's peanut butter egg. Okay. Um, it does. It does the, look. Uh, yeah, a rainbow, rainbow colored Reese's yeah. peanut butter egg. Yeah, I can see it. Um, the Italian name for it is Platysaurus intermedius. I like the saurus part. That's cool. Yeah. But I guess that's the whole lizard thing. They're probably that, all called sauruses. Probably there. Uh, there's probably a lot of saurus. Yeah. <laughs> um, saurus once. I've seen them all. <laughs> Sars. Um, it's in the Cordylidae family. Nine subspecies, all living in southern Africa. Not a one is exists outside of southern Africa. So, yeah. Um, then we get a list of all the different subspecies. So, uh, which, which one sh- do you think shows more promise? Flat lizards, or lizards in general, really. We can, I mean, heck, we could probably find our way to dinosaur from here, but. That's true. That's true. Um, 
or when you post it up against when you post <laughs> dinosaurs up against Rifu, I mean, what, who's <laughs> gonna win? Let's be real here. So we're we going to this flat lizard then. Yeah, let's 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 go to the flat lizard. Uh, um. Okay, so females and juveniles of all species of the uh, lizard, the common flat lizard have black scales with white stripes on their backs. Their bellies are brown, but their outer hmm. edges are white. It's not what I saw in the picture. <laughs> it does not look like that at all in the picture. Oh, maybe this is a, a male. Yeah. Adult males have different colorations for each subspecies. The lizards live mostly under exfoliating or weathering rocks. Their preferred types of rock to live underneath are granite, sandstone, and quartzite. These lizards can be found primarily in savannas that are moist, as well as rock outcrops. They range throughout Zimbabwe, North Province, Pumalanga, Southern Malawi, Eastern Botswana, Swaziland, Mozambique, and Northern KwaZulu-Natal. This area includes the Kalahari Desert and several large river drainage systems. Is it just me, or do you find it sometimes a little uh, unsettling to say Swaziland? There's something about it that kind of looks like Nazi land and swastika, like yeah. in one word. Yeah, like they combine and them, and it's just <laughs> like, oh. Like, I don't know, there's something about it that always kind of throws me off. Like, I want to always try to say Swaziland to try to, like, avoid the <laughs> going upwards my into a Nazi sort of thing. And, uh, but I know that's not how it's said. Mm. I've heard them say it at the United Nations, and if there's anybody who's going to try to avoid the word <laughs> Nazi at all costs, it might be them. Yeah. Well, um, we got, uh, the subspecies here. Uh, P.I. Wilhelmy. That's it seems like an odd. I guess it's just somebody's name, but probably because it looks like most of these are P I Rhodesian Ness Rhodesian P I. You know, now I kind of want a TV show, an animated TV show about nine different cop wizards who are all <laughs> private investigators. <laughs> they all live under rocks. Yeah, they're always undercover. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so Wilhelmy are green and brown, or green or brown on their backs. Uh, white spots are also present, and their tails begin red and change to yellow at the ends. Their bellies are mostly blue, but the centers are black. That's a lot of color going on. It's very interesting. I, I don't know. You don't usually see, like, non-fish with... Or non-birds with lots of color. Yeah, and not only that, but the fact that these are the common kind of this lizard yeah. is like, oh, well, that's unexpectedly festive. Yeah. I wonder what the really bo I wonder what the uncommon ones look like. <laughs> uh, so Rhodesianus uh, is one of the largest subspecies of this reaching 120 millimeters in length. And a male can have a blue-green or a yellow-green head. And the head also has three white stripes. 
just like the band, except the band has two. <laughs> but but uh, the back color is dependent on range. Uh, for the majority of its range, the front part is of its back is blue-green. Ex- the only exception is in Mozambique, where the front part is red. That's so strange. Like, based on where it is in the world, it's just like, oh, we just have a different color in, like, our one part of our bodies. Um... So, Nigrasens is uh, another type. Uh, it can be up to nine centimeters long. Wait, nine... C- okay. Um, and the male has a black head, chin, throat, chest, and belly. And yellow scales are scattered across its body. And the tail is bright orange. Cool. I wish they had, like, pictures of these things to go along with this. Because um, I would just... I don't <laughs> care if it's basically the same lizard, just, like, yeah. having different colors. I want to see those colors I, I, yeah, on I, that lizard. I would very much like to see what these things actually look like, because the, the descriptions sound interesting. They do. I mean, like, having an actual picture... Sco- do they, uh, I'm going to just Google... Google even, I'm just going to Google yeah, it. Yeah, uh, like, what if... Let's see... Well, okay, that's not right. Um, that's, uh, <laughs> well, maybe this is part of the reason why. <laughs> okay, let's uh, not let's, use let's, PI. Yeah, let's try I'm using Platosaurus Intermedius. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Cool. All right. Yeah. yeah, here we go. Here's some lizards. That's cool. There's a bright orange tail one. Let's go to the Wilhelmie, see what that one looks like. Uh, interesting. Yeah, these are pretty cool. They very much are like rainbow lizards. They all look like they have that kind of characteristic to them. Like, their tails are almost always that orangish brownish yeah and then it's always like kind of a blue green red sort of fade like if you needed to make a tv out of an animal <laughs> you just take these and stack them yep because they are the perfect mix of red green and blue <laughs> yeah that's i've never seen like a lizard that colorful like Aside from just, like, a solid bright color or, like, you know, having spots or something like that. Oh, this is pretty cool. Um, so there's another one called Sub-Niger, which is uh, dark green back with... Which becomes brown or black in the rear of the back. Oh, my God. That's, that's a sentence. <laughs> the male of this subspecies has a dark green back which becomes brown or black in the rear of the back. <laughs> <laughs> With whiter spots. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so the males from Trelawney, Zimbabwe, their backs are uniform red, also with whiter spots. So that's something. Um, Parvis is like up to 65, 75 millimeters long, dark green back, 
Um, also whitish spots. It's, it looks like a lot of these have white spots or stripes. Um, got the Natalensis, and they have they're dark green. Intermedius is the first subspecies found, and they have green or brown bodies and heads. And Inopinus is uh, has white thighs with black spotting and a lack of a reduced collar. And the Nyasse, uh, no information. <laughs> What's interesting about Parvis and Inopius is um, they're both central around this thing called Blueberg, which is a mountain. Hmm. The P.I. Inopinus are on the foothills of Blueberg, and then... On the actual mountain of Blueberg, the Parvis lives. <laughs> and Blueberg's one of those interesting mountains that's just like a big flat thing. Doesn't have any point. Mm. Just goes. Um. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I've never heard of Blueberg. Wow, you know what? I never put it together before that Berg means mountain. Wow. Whoa. Because blue bird means blue mountain. Wow. So berg means mountain. So like iceberg is an ice mountain. And uh, oh my God. all these places like... Oh, my God. <laughs> with berg in the name. Wow. <laughs> Harrisburg. Yeah. Harris's Mountain. Oh, Jesus. Oh, <laughs> uh, makes so much more sense now. Bloomsburg. Yep. And that's why all these bergs are always situated on like rivers because they're always like yep. these peaks right by. Oh my god. Oh, yeah. I'm broken. <laughs> oh, I just got broke. Who would have thought we learned that in a lizard article? We learned about mountain. <laughs> we learned that all berg are mountain. We learned that berg is not just a <laughs> random thing that people slap on the end of town names because they like it, it actually means stuff. Pittsburgh. Hmm. Pittsburgh makes sense now. It's a bunch of mountains around yep. some rivers. Uh, <laughs> wow. Sometimes you just feel sad that you didn't don't. put it together <laughs> before. <laughs> oh, man. Can I also file a complaint really quickly? If Blueberg means Blue Mountain, how many Blue Mountains do you people really want there to be in the world? For God's sake, there's five in Pennsylvania alone. They're all called Blue Mountain. And not one of them has been blue. Yeah. It only looks blue, but it's far away, and it's reflecting sky By the stuff. time you're close enough to be like, yeah, I can name this now, you should probably yeah. call it something else. I mean... Technically, once you get up close and personal, all mountains are green mountains. Not this one. This one's brown. Well, unless there's... If there's foliage, green mountain. Green mountain. No foliage, brown mountain. (laughs) Maybe we should name them after colors. That could be. Maybe we should name them after, like, what they resemble. Maybe we should uh, not name them when we're, like, 25 miles away from them. Probably (laughs) not. Wait until we get up close and be like, okay. Yeah, we probably but we have a bad habit of naming things from far off and before we actually understand what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's kind of people in a nutshell. Yeah. 
I feel like you should always name a mountain like what it looks like. Because, I mean, not yeah. all of them look like mountains. Some of them are like, like, like a nice, like, hill. Some of them look like marbles. They're very rounded. Mm -hmm. Some of them look like pyramids. They're very triangular, very pointy. This one here happens to look like a big hockey puck. Yeah. Big melted hockey puck mountain. There, boom. <laughs> Bet you there aren't that many of those out there. Yep. Okay. Well, where do we want to go from this article? Because, I mean, we got lizards, but um, we also got, like, Africa, or we have, like, exfoliating. I was actually looking at exfoliating. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Like, of all the things that there are on here, I'm just kind of like, exfoliating. Yeah. But then again, any of these countries in um, Africa, we don't usually get a chance to really delve into. True. Um, there may be some interesting things that maybe might not be wars, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but may also be, if we want to go that route, if it's interesting enough, I mean, right. gotta leave it open. But at the same time, what makes it exfoliating? <laughs> Do they, like, rub yeah. themselves on it? I mean, yeah. Exfoliating... Like, in this context, it interests me. Yeah. I'm not going to start... Go I'm not going to go home and exfoliate. I don't right. think that would... I, that's not something I really, like, want to get into. I think my skin does a fine job <laughs> on its own. But... I don't know. I th I'm thinking exfoliating. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of feeling it, you know? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's exfoliate. Let's exfoliate a little bit here. Okay, so it takes us to exfoliation joint. Uh, so exfoliation joints or sheet joints are surface parallel fracture systems in rock that often lead to erosion of concentric slabs. Hmm. Oh, those are that's a line of people. I thought that was the I was like, wow, that rock's really <laughs> eroding, and then I hovered over it and sure enough it's just a line of people just going right up the thing. Yeah. Hmm. So the exfoliation joints that that line of people that that That's very that, I, it looks very steep. Like it looks almost like a 90 degree angle so how like, are they doing that <laughs> is what i want to know i don't know if it's photographic trickery or what but maybe it's just i mean okay so this thing's supposed to be a half dome right that's what this thing says oh, yeah. it says it's a half dome so maybe this thing is just deceptive because it's huge and it's mm. barren. So it looks to us like this shouldn't be possible, but there's more curvature going on than we're That's taking true. into account. It, maybe it's just so big that... It that, just looks yeah. like there, is, there are people walking straight up into space. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm up here. I'm going to keep right on heading up. <laughs> this is the only place where you'll just be able to walk straight up a wall. Walk out of the atmosphere. <laughs> When you tell somebody to get off the planet, this is where they go. Yep. They can just they can take the exit into the sky. <laughs> Tower of Babel shouldn't have done it. <laughs> they had a natural, all along. natural one. Now there are some general characteristics. They are 
Uh, exfoliation joints commonly follow topography. They divide the rock into subplanar slabs. So if you've ever seen a rock that has just kind of like, you know, flat, but then also kind of layeredness mm. going on, that's kind of an exfoliation slab. Joint spacings increases with depth from a few centimeters near the surface to a few meters as you get deeper in. Uh, maximum depth of observed occurrence is about 100 meters. And deeper joints have a larger radius of curvature, which tends to round the corners of the landscape as material is eroded. Hmm. Fracture mode is tensile. <laughs> Fracture mode. <laughs> Fracture mode is tensile. This, uh, this rock has entered fracture mode. <laughs> fracture mode. It's very tensile. <laughs> it can occur in many different lithologies and climate zones, not unique to glaciated landscapes. Host rock is generally sparsely jointed, fairly isotropic, and has high compressive strength. Can have concave and convex upward curvatures, often associated with secondary compressive forms such as arching, buckling, and atents or buckled slabs. Hmm. So really, it's like the uh, beginning of the end for any rock face. <laughs> So, despite their common occurrence in many different landscapes, geologists have yet to reach an agreement on a general theory of exfoliation joint formation. Many different theories have been suggested, and uh, we got some examples of the uh, most common ones. Um, removal of overburden and rebound. Uh, this theory was proposed by Grove Carl Gilbert in 1904, widely found in introductory geology texts. And the basis of this theory is that erosion and overburden and exhumation of deeply buried rock to the ground surface allows previously compressed rock to expand radially, oh. creating tensile stress and fracturing the rock in layers parallel to the ground surface. Um, the depiction of this mechanism has led to alternate terms for exfoliation joints, including pressure release or offloaded joints. Though the logic of this theory is appealing, there are many inconsistencies with field and laboratory observations suggesting that it may be incomplete. And some of those inconsistencies are exfoliation joints can be found in rocks that have never been deeply buried. And laboratory studies show that simple compression and relaxation of rock samples under realistic conditions does not cause fracturing. Also, exfoliation joints are most commonly found in regions of surface parallel compressive state stress Whereas this theory calls for them to occur in zones of extension. So, um, got another one here. Thermio, therm, thermoelastic strain. So, this one says that rock expands upon heating and contracts upon cooling. And different rock-forming minerals have variable rates of thermal expansion or contraction. And daily rock surface temperature variations can be quite large, and many have suggested that stresses created during heating cause the near surface zone of rock to expand and detach in thin slabs. So, alright, so this one's basically just like the constant heating and cooling is, you know, a strain on the 
straight on the, on the solid rock. Yeah. Right. Then there's uh, chemical weathering. Mineral weathering by penetrating water can cause flaking of thin shells of rock since the volume of some minerals increases upon hydration. However, not all mineral hydration results in increased volume. While field observations of exfoliation joints shows that the joint surfaces have not experienced significant chemical alteration, so this theory can be rejected as an explanation for the origin of large-scale, deeper exfoliation mm. joints. And then finally, there is compressive stress and extensional fracture, where large compressive stresses parallel to the land or a free surface can create tensile mode fractures in rock, where the direction of fracture propagation is parallel to the greatest principal compressive stress and the direction of fracture opening is perpendicular to the free surface. The type of fracturing uh, that I just described is uh, observed in the laboratory since at least uh, the year 1900 in both uniaxial and biaxial unconfined compressive loading. Uh, tensile cracks can form in a compressive stress field due to the influence of pervasive microcracks in the rock lattice and extension of so-called wing cracks from near the tips of preferentially oriented microcracks, which then curve in line with the direction of the principal compressive stress. So, to boil that down, the basic thing is that if there are earthquakes underneath the rock and it shakes it, then you get some cracks going through the rock mm -hmm. out from that point. And if something were to smack into a rock, like a meteor, then you would have impact in the rock from that point, mm -hmm. kind of creating that concave or convex sort of inward curve or outer curve wave, depending on how things get hit, how things get affected, um, or even, I suppose, if a rock structure is on top of, like, the epicenter of an earthquake versus if it was hmm. somewhere else. <laughs> you know, if you were far away and the land was just kind of moving, it'd be like, all right, but what if the land was moving, like, both directions right underneath you, hmm. if you were a rock? You'd probably get pretty broken up. Yeah. Pretty, like, all over the place with it. If you were on, like, a fault line or something. Oh, sure enough. Look, goes on to say that. Fractures formed this way are sometimes called axial cleavage, longitudinal splitting, or extensional fractures, and are commonly observed in the laboratory during uniaxial compression tests. High horizontal, this is the part, uh, or surface parallel compressive stress can result from regional tectonic or topographic stresses, or by, I guess, you know, erosion or excavation of <laughs> overburdening to it, if you want who cares though like tectonics like tectonics <laughs> so now that we have exfoliated we should probably go see some dome I think yeah I think going to half dome would be interesting because I'd like to see why this thing is impossibly like climbable why is this why, yeah how, how, how did you people walk get up to the there? top how did they how did they do that <laughs> What is going on in this picture? That makes it worse. <laughs> Half dome. Man, that's that's interesting that Half Dome gets its own article without a qualifier like you know, parentheses 
mountain. Yep. You know, like, where, where's the article about half domes? Oh. For the term in architecture, see semi-dome. Aha. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. It's an improper name for <laughs> a partial so, dome. <laughs> I guess that's the slang term, then. Half dome. <laughs> it's the street dome. <laughs> Um, yeah, so this is a granite dome in the eastern end of Yosemite Valley in Yosemite National Park, California. And it is a well-known rock formation in the park named for its distinct shape. The shape of a half dome. All right, so let's see. It's got the profile of the half dome here. Looks pretty cool. Yeah, we don't get a great picture of how these people are doing this. Okay, so it does look pretty steep. Maybe they're using like things or maybe is there like stairs carved into it or something? Well, maybe. We know, should go down to a... hiking the cable route. Ah, there is a cable. Yes. Ah, so that's it, how they do it. Is, it is like deceptive because from far off, you don't really see it. It's a very subtle yeah. cable network with some ledges along the side of the half dome, which yeah. allows you to uh, do it. And apparently it gets overcrowded on the weekends, <laughs> as the uh, subtitle for one of the pictures goes on to say. Now, the half dome cable route hike runs from the valley floor to the top of the dome. In 8.2 miles. Wow. With 4,800 feet in that 8.2 miles of sheer elevation gain. Man. That's <laughs> a hike. Uh, yeah, that that's even bigger than we were really expecting uh, yeah. at all. The length and difficulty of the trail used to keep it less crowded than other park trails, but in recent years, the trail traffic has grown to as many as 800 people a day. Who want wow. to take that hike? The hike must be done from the valley floor in a single long day, but many people break it up by camping overnight in the little Yosemite Valley. The trail climbs past the Vernal and Nevada Falls, then continues into the little Yosemite Valley, then north to the base of the northeast ridge of Half Dome itself. The final 400 feet ascent is steeply up the rock between two steel cables used as handholds. The cables are fixed with bolts into the rock and raised onto a series of metal poles in late May. The poles do not anchor the cables. The cables are taken down from the poles in winter and early October, but they are still fixed to the rock surface and can be used. The National Park Service recommends against climbing the route when the cables are down and when the surface of the rock is wet and slippery. Well, that seems obvious. <laughs> yeah, I would I would hope so. Like, don't go on this giant, <laughs> smooth dome surface. Yeah. Um, the cable route is rated a class three, with while the same face away from the cables is rated a class five on a scale of I guess one to five of how hard things are to hike. Mm. So it's really, like, it looks daunting, but it looks more impressive than it is, I suppose. Yeah. And that's why it's become extremely popular. <laughs> yeah, like, you see pictures and people are like, whoa, whoa. what did you do? And then you and go to it and you're like, oh, well, I mean, well, I just hold just, on to this yeah. <laughs> and I walk. There's really not a whole lot of effort to put not, into this. Not, not much to do here. Um, like, once you're at it's the It's really dome, just an endurance test. Yeah. 
You're at the dome. Oh, you made it to the last 400 feet. Congratulations. <laughs> that won't. That's that's easy. You just climbed 4,400 feet and walked eight it's like miles. Wa- so. Walking a big giant staircase. Yeah, like that's not. It's not terrible. Yeah. It looks cool though. It does. Yeah. To say I was here in this line. <laughs> yeah. Can you get back down though? Because I feel like. Well, it's not really a since, good way to return. Since it's a dome, can you go just across the whole thing? Or? I guess if you went up from the right po- position, yeah, you, you should be able to. Because I can't imagine they just send you right back down the same spot. Because, And I don't see any other lines of people. Yeah, they must They must uh, just kind of like go down and then probably loop back around to the base I somewhere. I mean, that actually would be a nice return trip. Because like yeah. you spend all that time going up for eight miles or whatever it is, and then you go you nice... go across, and then it's like ah, it's all downhill now. That's not bad. Yeah, I don't know why it's all downhill from here is like a bad terminology. Because like that's <laughs> the easy part. That's that's the part that's nice, you know. Yeah, yeah it's all downhill it's like, from here. Like fine. Yeah. It's still, I still when see new stuff. Like, um, actually, it's easier. Bo- both is bad because you could say oh, it was an uphill battle. And that's like really hard, you know, like a hard thing that is tough to do. But then it's like, well, it's all downhill from here. It's like, it's the gl- like is the glass half empty? Hill? Is the glass half empty or is the glass half full and you're just not thirsty? Like, like it's just like people <laughs> yeah, just don't like to look at things. People don't like to look at things positively. Like, yeah, that's the problem. It's like, yeah, the glass is half full, but who wants to drink it? <laughs> who wants to drink a half, half full empty. glass? <laughs> I'm not going to drink a half-empty glass. I need my glass to be presented to me full, or I'm not going to touch it, because somebody else was in that glass then. I don't know who. Man, that, yeah, I've never thought about that before. but No, but it's, it's kind of it's problematic. It just shows you that we don't think about things right all the time. Yeah. But yeah, so that's uh, interesting. Yeah, a little bit. Well, uh, from 1919, when the cables were erected through 2011, there have been six fatal falls from the cables. The latest fatality occurred on July 11th, or July 31st, 2011. Lightning strikes can also be a risk while on or near the summit. In 1985, five hikers were struck by lightning. Two of them died. Three of them lived to tell the tale. That's crazy. Yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. Can you imagine walking up that thing and then just like, all right, get struck by lightning. That's all right. That's it. Okay. Ow. Like, that's yeah. I I can't imagine that being uh, the end accomplishment. There, you finally get this feeling of victory, and then zap. (laughs) It's a Tower of Babel all over again. (laughs) Get out of here. Get off of this. You're too high up. Get down. <laughs> Idiots. The top of uh, Half Dome is apparently a large flat area where climbers can relax and enjoy their accomplishment. The summit offers views of the surrounding areas, including uh, Little Yosemite Valley and the Valley Floor. Another location to one side of the Half Dome is the Diving Board, where Ansel Adams took his photograph, Monolith, the face of Half Dome. On April 10th, 1927, often confused with the visor, a small overhanging ledge at the summit, the diving board is on the shoulder of Half Dome. Oh, wow. 
So, uh, unfortunately, they don't have the picture included in uh, this article. But if you look it up on Google, it is a very, very nice picture. That Ansel Adams knew what he was doing. Yes, he did. That is a cool-looking rock face. Mm-hmm. Wow, the cable route is added to the National Register of Historic Places. So people have been going up there for a long time. Yeah. To the point where the cable route has been standardized <laughs> for 100 years. Yeah, the, the cable route is a like historic place. That's interesting. I would have thought it was it would be like a structure. Or, I mean, I guess it technically is a structure, but I would I would have thought a like you know enclosed structure of some kind. And if you are feeling like, how am I gonna get to California? How am I gonna hike 4,800 feet up? How am I gonna walk 8.2 miles in a day? Don't worry, somebody took a panorama shot from the <laughs> summit of Half Dome for you. See, you don't need to go anywhere, you bum. You can just look at this and be like, well, you, now you saw it. Yep. <laughs> as long as Wikipedia fixed their servers, because uh, uh, so far it's not really like letting you zoom in. You can't uh, really get the whole VR experience yet, but yeah. soon. <laughs> yeah, come on, Wikipedia, get on your VR game. I tried that for the first time the other day. It's really unsettling. Mm. So Half Dome was originally called Tissaak, meaning cleft rock in the language of the local Ahwanachi people. And Tissaak is also the name of the fourth route on the formation, ascended by Royal Robbins <laughs> and Don Peterson. <laughs> Who names their son Royal? That's weird. Um, they ascended this over eight days in 1969. Tissa is the name of a mother from a native legend. The face seen in Half Dome is supposed to be hers. Tissa is the name of a mono lake Paiute. Tay Indian girl in the Yosemite Native American legend. Uh, John Moore it referred to the peak as Tissiac. Uh, whoever John, this John Moore is. Uh, yeah, they don't re- let you know either. They don't give you it's a link. It's like they have this whole thing, and then they just throw that in there at the end. Like, By the way, this guy, he, he said referred this. to it as this. So, you know care about that if you want to. It's not its name, but mm. he he called that. He was wrong. Remember how wrong he was. That's the main thing we want to tell you. We want to impose upon you. Don't look him up. Don't look up the wrong dude. Um, others say the Awanichi Native Americans named Half Dome face of a young woman stained with tears which would be, oddly enough, Tisiak. Uh, because of the colonies of brown and black lichens that form dark vertical drip-like stripes along drainage tracks in the rock faces. Hmm. In 1988, Half Dome was featured on a 25-cent United States postage stamp and image of Half Dome along with John Murr, who's that guy again, now you can have a link, uh, and the California Condor, appears on the California State Quarter, which was released in January of 2005. 
Starting in October of 2010, an image of Half Dome is included on the new revised California driver's license in the top right-hand corner. Counterfeit artists take note. <laughs> in 2014, Apple revealed their new version of their operating system, Yosemite, and Half Dome was the default wallpaper. Because Yosemite! Yosemite! Half Dome is also an element of inspiration in various company and organization logos, including that of the North Face, Sierra Designs, Mountain Khakis, Outdoor Product Companies, the Sierra Club, Environmental Group, and the Sierra Entertainment Game Studio. In 2015, American artist Toro Imoy, real name Chaswick Bundick, oh... Gotcha. Wait, good, what? good, good name change. That doesn't make sense, what? really. Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah. Released a song called Half Dome from his album What For. The song was inspired by a hike he took up the dome. On the hike, he happened to meet photographer R. Adam Prido, who was a fan of Bundick's music. Prido agreed to create the music video for Half Dome. The video features time-lapse videos of the dome and surrounding area. Hmm. Well, okay, Eric. <laughs> Chaswick Bundick? There's no link? Oh, yeah, there is. Tor- we gotta go to his pseudonym. That's true. But we'll um, call him We'll call him by his birth name, his given name, the entire time. <laughs> Chaswick Bundick. Yep. All right. Hi, Chaswick. Chaswick Bradley Chaz Bundick. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, bud. Uh, good for you for being an artist and being famous enough to be recognized by your pseudonym, which you did get to choose. That's much smoother. Toro Imoy, good choice. Toro Imoy. Uh, born in 1986, known professionally as we previously mentioned, Toro Imoy is an American singer, songwriter, and producer. His music has taken on many forms since he began recording, but he is often identified with the rise of the chill wave movement as of 2010 and 2011. Uh, his stage name is a multilingual expression consisting of the Spanish words Toro and E, meaning bull and and, respectively, <laughs> and the French word meaning me. Oh, moi. Moi. Hey, hey, hey. Toro uh, y moi. Bull and me. Come on, yeah, let's get together then. Well, so okay. he's a. Yeah. <laughs> still doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Nope. Because he's still just him, as far as I know. I don't know yeah. where the bull's coming from. Bull and me. I mean, he's born in November, so that's not even like his. It's not even like his his his, his sign. <laughs> the bull. Um, but. Uh, no, I don't know. He was born in South Carolina to a Filipino mother and an African-American father, attending Ridgeview High School, where he formed the indie rock band The Heist and The Accomplice with three schoolmates. Bundick graduated from the University of South Carolina in 2009 with a bachelor's degree in graphic design. Late in his school career, Toro Imoy formed a close musical relationship with fellow chillwave artist Ernest Green, it performs under the name Washed Out. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, his first record was released in 2010 called Causers of This. And then he put out uh, a second album one year later. So that was a pretty quick turnaround. Underneath the Pine. 
And he also released an EP the same year called Freaking Out. And then uh, in 2013, he released Anything in Return. And there's a nice picture of him over here with a different look than uh, the other picture that we saw. Got a little bit of an afro going on. And uh, then his fourth album was the aforementioned What For? And did he... Oh, he released a surprise free mixtape the same year called Samantha. And then in 2017, released another album. Or, yep, he released another album in two days, actually. He's going to be releasing it called Boo Boo. So, I like when we get on top of these uh, release date things. Uh, It happens occasionally, but... This time, two days away from yeah, that's him dropping right this album. Money. That's pretty good. <laughs> actually, well, I, I guess uh, technically listening to this, it would have released like uh, a week ago. Because <laughs> time. Well, oh yeah, cause time time shenanigans. Yeah, time. Well, so but, we were we were still kind of right on the money ish. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, well, recording-wise, we're still, and you know, even so, if you average off, out how far <laughs> we away, are away from it while recording, and how far away from it we will be once it comes out, right. and once our episode talking about it comes out, if you average it out, the middle is going to be the release date. True. So and, there you go. And right even even so, like when you consider the fact that out of all of the articles that we could possibly go to, out of all of the dates. And the years of those dates are, you know, specified. To get one so close to today's date, whatever that is for you, uh, like that—that's pretty good. I mean, yeah. being within a week or a month is pretty good. I would say that is absolutely, absolutely. Because I mean, there's how many millions of articles on here, and probably all of them, or a lot of them, have dates in them ranging from the far past to the uh, far future so I mean it's pretty impressive the, yeah. what are, what are the I don't know what the odds on that are yeah but one day it's, it's uh, one yeah. week really if, if we had our own little uh, status what what would the um, uh, what would the name of like a person who calculates that kind of thing be like a statistician? Status- statistician? Would that be what? Who would calculate the odds, or would that be a probab? Is there like a probabilitician or something? Uh, uh, I, I would say a statistician. Statistician, yeah. because I feel like they would calculate probabilities and statistics. But uh, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I know feel like I wish there was like a <laughs> problematician or something. Yeah. Problematician. <laughs> Problem magician. Problem magician. Problem magician. He's a magician. He solves problems. He also Bring makes me them. your problems. I'll magic them. <laughs> uh, yeah. But if we had one of those people, they could figure out the stats and tell us the probability of that. But we don't. And we're not going to do that. 
But uh, yeah, so looks like this Half Dome song was not a single of his. It was just kind of on one of the albums. Remixes. Uh, he remixed... Or wait, is this... Uh, remixes of other songs? Yeah. Uh, Tegan and Sarah's Alligator he remixed. We got Tyler the Creator's French he remixed. And Billy Holiday's My Man he remixed. Oh, he was featured as a uh, featured artist a couple of places. Travis Scott and uh, Chromio, namely. Recognize both of those artists. You would too if you hear, heard the songs. I mean, Chromio is not one that a lot of people recognize, but they totally do. They've heard the yeah. songs. They know They know the Chromio now. Oh, his, uh, one of his songs appeared in the season premiere of the eighth season of Entourage, and one of his songs called New Beat appeared in the film Magic Mike, and he actually had a few songs in the soundtrack to Grand Theft Auto V, and, uh... One of his songs was featured on the About Last Night soundtrack. So, there you go. Um, yeah, there's not much going on with this. Not much else going on with this guy. But he's still pumping out albums. He's He's got a good output. I'll say that. Well, from here we have lots of options, surprisingly. Was not expecting to get that many <laughs> options out of the chill wave artists, but uh, hey, we don't have much time though. Oh, we have all the time in the world. <laughs> Look at all the time things we just did. Pull all these time tricks, these tricks of time. <laughs> no, but I, I digress. I mean, you're not wrong. We we do have a little bit of time. We should choose carefully and mm-hmm. then proceed accordingly. I guess the real question is, what's the most ex- what's the most exciting thing here? Space disco. Space disco. <laughs> I mean, that sounds <laughs> that sounds like the most. Uh, I mean, that catches my eye the most. It's shiny. It's disco. It's in space. I've never heard of space disco, but. Uh... It's never too late to discover it. It is the fusion of disco music with futuristic themes, sounds, and visuals. A genre that became popular in the late 70s. Here I thought that it was a more modern genre. I don't know. For some reason, I would just have assumed that... That it wasn't just like... You know, uh, from the seventies, like space yeah. disco sounds like a reincarnation of the yeah, disco that already it sounds existed, like, not like first disco. People like took disco and they're like, "Hey, let's do something new and cool with it." But this sounds but, like this <laughs> was just like the original disco. Yeah, this is just something. This is disco this with is disco futuristic with, themes, yeah. sounds, and visuals. So that's 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 nothing that's just, new. Yeah, that's just the same thing, but just different lyrics. Did disco stuff. ever not have futuristic sounds and visuals? <laughs> I feel like relative to the other dance styles of the time, like it wasn't quite as intense as maybe like the synthwave movement of the eighties, mm. but like you know, it was close. Yeah. Second to none. 
So it was actually Space Disco was very popular in Europe between 1977 and 1979. Very specific, short period of time. Uh, relatively popular artists that contributed to this musical style include Mecco, uh, Star Wars theme slash Cantina band, <laughs> which was also a number one <laughs> hit in the U.S. Wait, wait, hold on. It was? What is this thing? Nothing. I know what that is, but it's not... They didn't actually just... Oh, no, you know what? I've this seen is a this remix? In, I've seen this record in... Um, I've seen vinyl, like, repressings of this in Barnes & Noble and stuff. Like, they still sell yeah. this record in, yeah, in, like, the soundtrack section. It's still really popular. Oh. Taken from the album Star Wars and Other Galactic Funk. <laughs> yep. Yep, that's it. Um... Yeah, number one. That's that's great. I don't know if I've actually heard that version then, because I was just thinking a number one hit based on the star. What a weird <laughs> time for the United States. Seriously, I guess at that time, if it's 1977 to 1979, they really cashed in on the Star Wars popularity then, because I'm sure people were just like dying to get their hands on anything Star Wars or. Basically, but I didn't. I thought it would have been like taboo to even attempt to, you know, yeah, do that. So we got other uh, popular artists here. Serone, which is a French disco drummer, <laughs> and we got Sarah Brightman, and. Uh, her hit song was I Lost My Heart to a Starship Trooper. And we got Didier Mariani and Space. And we got Ganymed. And we got Sheila B. Devotion. <laughs> uh, and then the German-based band Boney M also adopted a Boney space disco. <laughs> Look for the cover artwork of their 1978 album, Night Flight to Venus, and the title track of the album typifies the genre with its robotic voice and futuristic theme. And obviously, space disco spread fast in Germany with the help of Musikladen, a music show produced by the German channel NDR. <laughs> uh, disco, another popular music show produced by ZDF also hosted some space disco artists. And then 1979, just before space disco faded, D.D. Jackson brought it to Latin America, mainly Brazil and Argentina, with their successful 1978 album, Cosmic Curves. And then uh, Jackson was British, but worked in Germany, and with the help of Italian producer Giorgio Moroder, managed to score a hit in the global charts of the time with Automatic Lover. Giorgio Moroder. You, you know him. He's the guy who did the... Uh, you ever hear the Daft Punk record, Random Access Memories? Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. The guy who's on... So he's... On my friend... 
Uh, my friends know me as Giovanni Giorgio, but everybody else just calls me Giorgio. Mm. That that song. Interesting. That's that guy. Huh. Yeah. So basically, space disco is like the uh, missing link between the '70s music and '80s music. That's. I guess that makes perfect sense, though. Really, I mean, like that was where electronic music started to really intermingle. Because I guess if you look at disco at its core, it was more like whirlwind violins at first. It was like that, like really fast-paced, like it was basically percussively driven orchestral music. Yeah, um, which wasn't really a thing too too much before that. Yeah, but. Uh, Yep, them just adding in a little synthesizer action, <laughs> getting a little crazy with the electronic bits, mm-hmm. make a little couple of whooshes, a couple of spaceship sounds. There you go. Yeah. And it looks like Star Wars definitely played a part in, you know, making this genre come into existence. Um, but yeah. So... There you have it, from Common Flat Lizard to Space Disco. Strange um, dichotomy. A little bit. (laughs) Uh, Two things I never thought would be at the ends of the spectrum there from this article. But um, go ahead and visit facebook.com slash TWC podcast and give us a like and follow and uh, stay with iTunes and uh, you can always find us on our website twc.ericteribio.com and I would like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song and Billy Jones and Ernest Hare for our outro song. So thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. Well, it turned out being okay anyway. Yeah. I mean, really wanted to get that Japanese director in there, but at least we got something done. Yeah. Well, maybe some other day will come up. We can hope so. <laughs> can only dream. Dare to dream. Could you grab it with your tonsils and then swing it left and right? All right, well. Lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight. Here comes the blushing bride, the boob right at her side. To the altar, as steady as Gibraltar, the bridegroom has the ring. It's such a pretty thing. She puts it on her finger and the choir begins to sing. Does the spearmint lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight? Always paste it on your napkin if you want to be polite. Could you get a job as typist if you couldn't do it right? Does the spearmint lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight? Does the spearmint lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight?
women losing flavor on the bed post overnight. Well, it makes a fellow shut up when he's dying to recite. Would you give it to your parent if he isn't cursing right? Does the women lose its flavor on the bed post overnight? <laughs> 